suddenly feel <coughs> a little bit far away. It's <laughs> kind of cramped at a distance. Kind of, I think one of my, my prides is that I'm not scary, but uh, I may have to rethink that. <laughs> no, 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 please. <laughs> please be comfortable, that's more important. Please be comfortable. Yeah. So, I, uh, I wanted to just begin by just acknowledging... Um, how touching it is to be in the presence of, of everyone's, you know, dedication and willingness. It is on. <laughs> everyone's dedication and willingness <laughs> to be here and, um, you know, through, through the days, it's, it's certainly not always easy. To, to be here, to be with what, what arises, to be with what comes up. So it's, I find it very humbling um, to just be in the presence of that and part of that and able to, to support that for you. So it kind of feels like if that's all I said, <laughs> that would almost be enough. But don't worry, I'm going to say a little bit more. <laughs> We sometimes joke a little bit that um, the teachings on a, on a retreat, especially when they're in the evening like this, it's like the day's entertainment and uh, kind of owe it to you to put on a good show. But I can't make any guarantees. Let's see. So I want to, um, to begin the talk with, um, with a story I, I heard recently about um, some research that was done. Um, and this was, I don't know, quite a few decades ago. And they had no, noticed, some, re, some social researchers had noticed that um, across the board in orchestras around the world, there were many more men musicians than women. And they wanted to kind of uh, look a little bit into kind of what was contributing to that. And so, you know, they began by asking questions and, you know, they were told very politically correctly that it's not that the men are better musicians, they just play more appropriately for an orchestra. So they still weren't satisfied with that, so they decided to do some research. And um, they decided to do auditions for an orchestra where the musicians were behind a screen so the people that were um, conducting the auditions couldn't see who was playing the instrument. Okay, so that was the first stage. And um, initially, they saw that there was no, no difference. It was still primarily the men who were playing more appropriately for an orchestra. And then one of them had one of these light bulb moments. And so they asked the musicians who came to audition to take off their shoes before they walked across the stage to the place behind the screen. And when that happened, interestingly enough, the balance between men and women changed, became more equal. So it was the clickety-clack of the heels <laughs> that the women were wearing that indicated unconsciously to the people holding the auditions, that this was a woman. Now, they did a variety of tests, and it's really important um, to say that none of these people doing the auditions had um, a, you know, prejudice or a, a conscious bias against women. You know, they genuinely were listening, and what they heard was, this person happens to be a man plays in a way that's more appropriate to the orchestra than this person happens to be a woman. Okay, that was their genuine experience. Isn't it interesting? <laughs> and what has that got to do with us? <laughs> I'm sure you're wondering that. What has that got to do with the teachings? What has that got to do with our experience right here, right now? 
So what it's got to do with us is actually quite a lot. Um, we've used this word fabrication a couple of times at least already on this retreat. This is an example of fabrication. So we take something to be a certain way, to have a certain essence. Yeah. So in this case, the people holding the auditions you know, listened to the music and genuinely their impression was this person is more appropriate for the orchestra than that person. Yeah, that was their impression. And their impression, you know, they thought they were really judging objectively. <laughs> yeah, objectively. Because they were not aware of this unconscious bias that was going on. Yeah. Or, we can say this another way, they were not aware of the fact that all experience is fabricated. Yeah. Fabricated means um, that perception is affected by things like views that we have, whether conscious or not conscious. It's affected by our mind state. Yeah. Perception is not neutral and it's not objective in the way we take it to be. <laughs> yeah, we always need to add that. If I forget to say that, keep putting that in, in the way we take it to be. So perception is dependently arising. Yes, fabricated, dependently arising. Nathan was using this language yesterday. Perception, what we perceive, is dependent on conditions. Yeah? Infinite conditions. Like I said, views, mind states, state of our body, genetics, yeah? where we grew up, what we had for lunch. <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> yeah, many, many conditions that are influencing what we perceive or how we perceive it. And yet we keep taking life, yeah, life, phenomena, ourselves, we keep thinking this has this kind of permanent solid essence to it, yeah, it's like this. Men play music in a way that's more appropriate <laughs> to orchestras, yeah, whatever it is. Yeah. We take it to be, to have an essence, to have an essential nature. So we can take really um, you know, simple examples of this. Yeah? Simple examples of this. So... You know, I think at least two, maybe more people told me um, today that even though this kind of weather is pretty normal for June in Finland, they were taken by surprise and they didn't pack enough warm clothes because the three weeks before were really, really warm. Yeah. So it's, it's fabricated, yeah, warm weather. And we forget that it's June. Well, you forget. I don't have that <laughs> much awareness of it. Forget that it's June in Finland and this could happen. Yeah? We forget. Yeah? Because our experience is fabricated. It's conditioned. It relies on many, many, many elements that come up. Yeah? So something simple like the weather. Or, you know, we can take another example to do with, with the weather. You know, I grew up in a very, very hot climate, you know. So I tend to have the experience when I meet Finnish people um, in different places, you know, that I'll be very cold and they'll be very comfortable, you know. And the conditions are the same, yeah. Conditions are the same. It'll be the same. We'll be experiencing the same temperature. But the experience will be different, because it's fabricated also by genetics and habits, what we've been exposed to through our lives, which then affects our likes and dislikes and our mind states and, you know, a million other things. Yeah? Does this, does this give a bit of a taste? Yeah? 
Yeah, so this is fabrication and we'll keep coming back to it because it's very connected to what we're doing here in the practice. Very, very important. And very much part of this kind of dependent arising, arising, arising understanding. So this is, you know, something that we begin to see in practice and, and you know, we're, we'll be pointing to it um, as much as we can. And it's very interesting and very liberating. And it's very interesting, in particular, when we include the impact of the mind on experience. Yeah? When we start to become more sensitive and interested in, okay, what is the mind state that is present right now, and how is it affecting my experience? Yeah. We start to be interested in that, because that is something that we can see in our experience, and it's also something that we can work with. So it becomes more and more interesting. I'll give you a small example of that from my experience. So this was very recent. Um, we had a, a week um, between teaching obligations um, and we got into this very nice rhythm when Nathan was making me a cup of coffee every morning uh, just the way I like it, you know, really, really nice. <laughs> with lots of milk. And um, I was noticing, you know, I would come downstairs and I would notice that sometimes it would just be really nice and sometimes there'd be this hint of irritation in the thing of like, oh, I'm, not, I'm not ready for, you know, some kind of very like, you know, I'm not quite ready for my cup of coffee. I'm feeling a bit stressed that it's already ready there and if I don't drink it, it's going to get cold and, you know, what's going to happen? And it's the same cup of coffee, it's the same very, very generous and kind gesture. The difference was in the mind state, yeah? That was there beforehand. If I was already feeling a little bit stressed or just a little bit aversive or a little bit irritated, then seeing the cup of coffee would, would trigger that, yeah? If I was feeling okay or good, then seeing the cup of coffee would be, you know, great nice treat so it's not in the object yeah it's not in the object it's in the relationship as Nathan was saying yesterday it's in the relationship to the object and the relationship is often affected by the state of the mind yeah and the state of the body and it gets really interesting because the more sensitive and tuned we are to that the more choice we have in our responses. And I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure that I never responded negatively to the cup of coffee. <laughs> but he's not going to tell me. He's going to keep that blank face. <laughs> anyway, in my memory at least, in most, most of the time, you know, in that very small example, yeah, that capacity to then not act on the irritation, yeah, not act, and actually see the bigger picture of, oh, somebody's done something nice for me, and this is something I enjoy or I like. Yeah. Not let it get in the way. So we can begin, and this is where it gets even more interesting, the more sensitive we are to see it, then we can begin to apply this knowledge, yeah? and not be kind of limited to these automatic pilot reactions, the reactivity. Yeah? We have more capacity to uh, respond. We have more choice. And mostly we can take things less seriously. Yeah. Take things, take ourselves less seriously, take events less seriously, which is a great relief. So I just want to frame this in another way, up to another way of, of framing it or speaking about it. Um, so we've been talking about ways of relating to experience. And another way of, of saying this is that there are ways of looking 
that affect our experience. Yeah, they're like lenses or filters that affect our experience. And that's the views, the mind states, the body state. Yeah, all of these. They're all kind of ways of looking that come in and they affect what we see and how we see it. Yeah, and it's just a, a language that, that is useful for me um, to use. So when we're aware of this, we can become sensitive to what, is, what way of looking is here yeah, right now. What way of looking is here right now? And then we can also incline the mind towards ways of looking that are more useful or skillful or wholesome. Yeah, so if I use that you know, silly example with the coffee again, we can incline the mind to see the generosity instead of seeing via the aversion. Or um, the examples that Nathan gave yesterday with the fly landing on the face, yeah, and bringing and, and having aversion to that. So the aversion is a way of looking, yeah, wanting to get rid of. And when we bring interest to the experience, to the sensations, we're changing the way of looking, yeah, and that can change experience. Exactly in the example that he was giving. And suddenly maybe the sensations can even become pleasant. It reminds me of um, teaching in Israel once and uh, there were a lot of flies in the meditation hall and I was sitting there um, and there was one fly particularly that just kept landing on my face and, you know, crawling all over and the aversion you know is so instinctive it's so quick you know just wanting to brush it off wanting to brush it off and bringing the interest in you know, really changed the experience and very quickly it became like ah the, the fly of mindfulness <laughs> it was actually really bringing presence you know because I was attending to it I was feeling every time it was landing and moving on my face and so it became like a friend and a, a support to the meditation rather than, rather than a difficulty. So it's just a, a shifting in the way of looking. So I'd like to look at one... Um, important kind of aspect of the practice today with this way of looking and fabrication as the background or the context um, from which we're exploring it. Okay, so this was kind of an introduction. And I'll come back to it. And what I want to speak about is about effort. When I say it in the hall, I feel like it's like... (laughs) saying a really bad word <laughs> immediately like I can feel all the <laughs> you know and I think it's really interesting to, to just to see you know when I say effort or when you think effort what does it feel like you know, what comes up in response to this word or this idea Really important to feel (laughs) without judgment. You know, there's no good or bad. But whatever it is that's coming up for you, that's a way of looking that you have (laughs) at effort. Yeah, And so that will influence how you apply and how you relate to this. Yeah, And effort is, you know, it's, it's something that we need every time we're learning something yeah and yet for most of us yeah for most of us not for all of us I think but for most of us it comes with a sense of a narrowing down and some contraction and tension yeah like sometimes um the word that's used in 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 modern teachings in English is efforting to make it more clear like there's something about this big deal that we're doing you know we're efforting we're taking on this burden and this sense of um 
responsibility. And it can be really interesting to just contemplate, you know, so what is the way of looking or what do I associate with effort and how does that affect my experience? Yeah, how does that affect my experience? My meditation practice or anything else that I kind of bring effort to. And one interesting thing to look at I'll just say it now, touch on it briefly, is how does it affect the sense of self? Yeah. There's a lot of us in the efforting, there's a lot of self. That's part of what's heavy. It becomes like a, oh, it's like this burden, something that I need to do. Yeah. So just really interesting to see that, yeah, so that we can take that into account. So if there's more contraction, if there's more tension, what else will there be? (laughs) Wonderful Pali word that Nathan was using a lot yesterday. More contraction, more dukkha. Yeah, more dissatisfaction, more unhappiness. They co-arise, they come together. But obviously, like with anything, there's other ways of looking at effort that we can apply, yeah? That may be more useful for us, yeah? Because as I said, you know, it's, it's something that we need to um, understand a little bit more. It's such a part of what we're doing. Such a part of what we're doing. And... You know, one question that can be there, you know, is it possible to um, apply effort, or to arouse effort in a way that doesn't cause suffering? That doesn't cause that narrowing down and that contraction. It's a question for each of us. You know, what would that be? In the teachings, effort is, um, is talked of a lot, <laughs> talked of a lot. Um, and one of the primary ways it's described is, is to me, really, really beautiful. Um, it's described wise effort, yeah, skillful effort, is described as abandoning what is not wholesome, yeah? Abandoning unwholesome states of mind, unwholesome attitudes, unwholesome approaches. So letting go of them, yeah? As much as we can. And wise effort is also cultivating and supporting wholesome states of mind. So if we go back to that um, example with the fly, yeah, the fly lands and there's aversion. Is aversion wholesome? Do you know, is this, is this a bit of an enigmatic word, wholesome? Hard to understand? Yeah. Finnish translation, anyone? Wholesome? Good for you, basically. <laughs> it means... Wholesome means good for you, like something that's healthy, something that's beneficial, something that's supportive. Yeah. Does that make sense to people now? Yeah. So if we go back to that example, sorry, I didn't give the Finns an an opportunity to translate. Um, So if we go back to that example, aversion would be um, a state of mind, yeah, that doesn't feel good, right? Doesn't feel good for us, doesn't feel healthy. Yeah. So we loosen that down, we let go of the aversion, and we bring in, we cultivate the wholesome, which is the interest. Does that make sense now to people? As a so it becomes the effort becomes instead of this kind of mission thing. 
<laughs> I need to, you know, to get things done. You know, we all know this. I think maybe women a little bit even more of like, I need to get things done. Yeah. And get on this drive yeah, to do things. Instead of that, it becomes of that, this exploration. Yeah, whatever is arising in experience, what would it mean to let go of what isn't good for me, what isn't helpful, what isn't supporting, what isn't nourishing, and to nourish, to cultivate, to develop that which is. So it's constantly an exploration. Yeah, constantly an exploration, a movement. And the beautiful thing about it is that as we're doing it, we're kind of already there. <laughs> because as soon as we've asked the question, yeah, is this helpful or not? <laughs> yeah, we're already in the process. We're already involved. We're already practicing. Yeah? It's not, we don't need to get somewhere. <laughs> it's right here already. Yeah, as soon as we remember to ask. So it's not about working for some far goal. We also, you know, don't let go of your aspirations. <laughs> but it's also very much here and now. Yeah, in every moment there's that possibility, that opportunity. And you may be getting the sense of this now. There's kind of layers and layers of this. Yeah. So if we say, okay, a wise way of looking at effort would be, how do I nourish? How do I cultivate? How do I develop what is helpful and wise? And how do I let go of what is unhelpful and not wise? Yeah. And then what can support that exploration, that capacity to see, to ask, to remember, yeah, and to support the nourishment of what is helpful and to support the capacity to let go of what isn't, because we all know that sometimes we can see that something is really not good for us or not helpful at all, and it's very difficult to let go of this, yeah, holding on to it, yeah. So... Qualities that I've mentioned, like interest, investigation, kindness, creativity, they all really support this process. They really support this process. And really remembering that everything is an opportunity. Yeah, Every moment is an opportunity. And sometimes this is kind of a really crazy way of saying it but it's almost like you know we can't go wrong <laughs> because if we if we're aware of what is happening and we're attending to it then some wholesome helpful useful momentum is already happening in that and people have been have been mentioning this in their experience over the days here already you know noticing um you know, physical pain or tiredness and noticing how it feels very problematic at some point. And then at another point, it suddenly doesn't feel problematic. You know, because the relationship has changed. Yeah, there's some interest there or some acceptance there. Yeah, less fighting against... So Nathan um, spoke last night of the dependently arising nature of everything. I've also touched on it already today. That everything, you know, everything is dependent on something else, or plural actually, on other things. 
Yeah, everything is dependent on something else. So, you know, we love giving this example. You know, this talk, yeah, I admit I wrote the notes, but it's not just down to me. <laughs> yeah. It's really interesting, isn't it? We think, oh, here's the person giving the talk. We're just a bunch of people passively listening. But the talk is dependent on the listening. Yeah? Dependent on the attention. It's dependent on your mind states. It's dependent on how much of that delicious soup we had. <laughs> you know, I've learned the hard way. I shouldn't eat too much <laughs> before I give a talk. It doesn't matter how good it tastes. Because if I do, it's dull. Yeah. So it's dependent on so many conditions. So everything is dependent on other factors. And one thing that means, you know, one aspect of that, Nathan spoke about it yesterday, if something is dependent on something else and we let go of a cause, that will affect, yeah, in that case it was the dukkha. So if something is dependent on something else and we remove that, that will have nothing to rest on. And it will also disappear, yeah? Or at least lessen. Is that clear? I'm not saying it as clearly as he said it yesterday, I know. And similarly, when something is dependent on something else, if we strengthen, if we nourish, if we... Um, support and develop one, then the other will also be developed. Okay? Does that make sense? Yeah? They arise together. Or they arise dependent on, on each other. Does that make sense? Tell me if not. Say no. Okay. You're not saying it. You're looking at me quizzically. <laughs> Try and go with an example. So, wise effort, skillful effort, helpful effort relies on other things. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> yeah, so it itself is not kind of freestanding and independent. And so there's factors that support it. And it's helpful to know those factors because we, if we nourish them, if we support them, if we develop them, then our relationship to effort will also become more beneficial. Yeah. And one of the primary ones is, um, this is another Pali word, beware, called virya, V-I-R-I-Y-A. And I'm saying the Pali not um, to kind of impress you with my very bad Pali knowledge, but um, because this word has a lot of meanings. So I'll say the different English ones as well. But it's helpful to remember one that means all of these, yeah? So it means this quality, um, usually translated as energy, um, sometimes translated, this is my favorite, enthusiasm, perseverance, courage, strength. These are some of vigor, which is a bit of an unusual word. Yeah. So one way of, of thinking about it, so this is a, a, a quality that is key within effort. Yeah. And it's kind of, I always think of it, it's like the fuel, yeah? So the effort is, is like the vision, yeah? To abandon what is not helpful and to nourish what is helpful. And the virya is like the fuel, the juice, that helps us kind of keep that going. Or another way of saying it, it's, it's actually what keeps us showing up to the practice. Yeah. And as I said at the beginning, it's not easy, particularly at the end of day two. <laughs> it's not easy sometimes for some of us. And yet it's that <clears throat> quality of virya that just keeps us showing up, coming back to the meditation, coming back to the hall coming back to the breath. Yeah. That 
energy and enthusiasm and a lot of courage. And virya itself, yeah, this is an ongoing thing, is dependent and supported by other factors. And I want to touch on them as well. I'm not trying to confuse you. You don't need to remember this. There's no test at the end. It's just to get this sense of this, everything that is here and available to us and supporting us in our practice. So virya supports effort to be wholesome. And virya itself is supported by aspiration. Is this a word that's, yeah, also a bit weird? Yeah. So aspiration is that wish of the heart. Yeah, that deep wish that again brings us here to, to live with meaning, to live with fulfillment. You know, it, it can take different, um, you know, it can, have, it can take different shapes for different people, what that is that I aspire to. It's like what I deeply wish for myself and for my life. Does that make a little bit more sense to people? Yeah. So that aspiration, it's like uh, the image I always get is it's like, a, you know, it's like a lighthouse that's beckoning to us. Ah, this is where, we, where you're going. And so it doesn't matter how far we are. And it doesn't matter how stormy or foggy it is in the way. But that sense of, ah, there is that light which is actually inside us, not outside of us. That is just showing us the way. This is where we're going. Or this is where we wish to go. And I also often feel it's like uh, when, when we rest into our aspiration, when we bring it in, it's like an alignment. I just did it with my body. You know, it's like a li- the, the spine becomes straight because we're in tune with what really matters to us. Yeah, what really, really matters to us. So aspiration is really, really important, and it can be a real resource. We can come back to it, you know, when when the practice feels um, dull or um, we feel confused or lost or low. We can bring that. We can come back to that. What is it that I'm here to do? That I wish for. The second. Um, Support for virya is um, that's going to be a lot of weird words. Steadfastness, <laughs> staying steady. Yeah, that capacity to stay steady with something, and it's it comes together with self confidence. Yeah, those two come together. So confidence or some kind of belief that I can do this. Yeah doesn't matter how many times I fall on my face, just like that child that I spoke about yesterday. I can learn to walk. I can learn to live well. Yeah. This is something, again, that we're, we're cultivating, we're developing in the practice, and we're, we're attuning to it. So all of these, I'm not saying them so that you kind of go through a checklist in your head and say, oh, I haven't got that. You know, what should I do? (laughs) You know, should I quit right now? (laughs) But just okay. So maybe that doesn't feel very strong. But can I feel that intention in me to support that, to nourish that? And this sense of steadiness and confidence in ourselves and in our capacity to walk the path, yeah, to do the practice one step at a time, that really creates, really creates space yeah and supports us to keep going yeah to keep going the third support for virya is um it's also one of those pali words that has multiple meanings so it's letting go moderation which means um to do things um, not in an extreme way, yeah, not in an extreme way, and rest, yeah, 
and rest. So it's noticing when there's too much efforting, yeah, or too much kind of going for something, yeah, and knowing when to just rest back, to balance the energy with calm and with ease, yeah. And also to allow ourselves those times that we need to digest experience. Yeah, these are also times of digesting. And the fourth one, it's actually in the original list. It wasn't fourth. I put it fourth because it's my favorite. So the fourth one is joy. Yeah, joy. Actually taking time to notice what is going well. Yeah, to notice what is enjoyable. To notice what is pleasant, you know, a little bit like we've been doing in the practice. And this is really needed. Yeah, it's really needed for us because of the way our minds operate. We need to consciously notice what is also going well. Because the way our minds operate is to notice what isn't going well. Yeah, that's the way this brain works, unfortunately. Yeah, more emphasis on what isn't going well than on what is going well. So we tend to see the half-empty glass rather than the half that is full. And so this part of taking time to notice what is pleasant, what is going well, what is supportive, what is enjoyable, what am I grateful for? You know, there's many, many ways that we can do this. It's really, really important to rebalance the view and to bring us back to, um, to a more balanced way of seeing our practice and our lives. meditation master Tanisa Rabiku he has an interesting take on this he says that when um, when we find that the mind is distracted and we come back to the breath if the breath is what we're using then we should reward the mind for coming back by breathing in a way that's extra comfortable or nice so he's, he kind of makes it even more of a thing. Yeah. So that the mind will want to come back to the breath because it feels nice. Yeah, that's another take on it. And I had an interesting conversation about this recently um, with, with a student of mine that we have a regular um, check-in and before we speak on the phone once a month, she writes me a reflection of her practice, um, what's been going on in her practice in the last month. And there's a lot of difficult things happening in her life at the moment. And so the last time we spoke, she, she said that actually when she writes, her sense is that a lot of difficult things are happening in her life and she's not able to practice in the way she would like to yeah, because of these difficulties and what they create in the mind. But when she sits down and writes yeah, a reflection of what actually happened during the month, then she sees all the goodness. Yeah? She sees the way she's been present to so many things, the way she's applied the practice in so many ways. Yeah. But she needs to sit down and write this for somebody else to read in order to become aware of that. Yeah. And her mind, her brain is not unique. This is, again, the way our brains work. It's not that we don't know that the good things are happening, but they don't register in the same way. It's called the negativity bias. Um, if people have heard, it's quite a hot topic 
in neuroscience at the moment. So we need to bring in the joy. Yeah, we need to bring in what is going well, opening to what is going well. Yeah, and the more we can do that, you know, baby steps as much as we can. Yeah, the more the practice gets embedded, absorbed into our being. So all of these, everything I've spoken about, we can see this as ways of looking, yeah, that we can apply. Yeah. So we can ask, what is my aspiration? What is my wish for my time here or for my life? Yeah, we can ask that and that becomes the lens through which we look at our experience. We can ask, what feels okay or joyful or nice? in this breath, or on this day, or in this wind, whatever it is, yeah? So we can bring these in as ways of looking, yeah? We can bring these in as ways of looking. And the more we do that, the more they become um, part of our habits, positive habits, yeah? So instead of aversion, we get interest, yeah? Instead of um, seeing what isn't going well, we start also to see what is going well. Instead of taking life seriously, we begin to take it a little bit more lightly. We have more humor. And so we're rewiring the brain as we're doing that. And this is, you know, something the Buddha said 2,600 years ago, and now science is saying the same thing. You know, this human mind is something we can work with. Yeah, something we can change. It's something we can tune like an instrument, like music. And I'll just end with another way of looking at effort which comes from the texts from the suttas and there's a story of um, a monk that was really really dedicated yeah and he was doing his practice you know alone in the forest practicing for hours and hours And in the sutta, it says that he did so much walking meditation that the soles of his feet were bleeding. (laughs) And one day, he became very, um, you know, he reflected on his situation and he became quite depressed. You know, he thought all these other students of the Buddha who are practicing with as much dedication as myself are becoming enlightened. And here I am, still plodding away, working so hard, nothing's changing, I should just give up. Luckily for him, the Buddha came along and um, they had a conversation. And the Buddha remembered that this man was a musician before he became a monk. And he played a, a string instrument. And so he asked him, when you used to play this instrument... If the strings were too tight, did the instrument make a pleasant sound? And the answer was no. And if the, instru- if, the, if the strings and the instrument were too loose, did the instrument play a pleasant sound? And the answer was no. And if the strings were tight enough without being too tight, if they were tuned just right, did the instrument play a pleasant sound? And the answer was yes. And so the teaching was, it's the same thing with how we apply ourselves to the practice. Walking meditation until the soles of your feet bleed, (laughs) not necessary and not helpful. Yeah, too much of that tightness. Yeah, sitting around, waiting, 
for awakening to happen of itself. Possibly also not a great idea. <laughs> yeah. But finding the balance. Yeah. Finding the balance. And this is an ongoing exploration for each of us. There isn't, you know, the right formula that we can just take. Yeah. We just have to keep playing with it. But if we can remember, like a musical instrument, yeah, an act of creativity. So let's have a a quiet moment together to bring this to a close. So may our practice together bring balance and joy to all our lives. And may our practice together spread joy, well-being, and freedom from suffering in the lives of all beings everywhere. So thank you for your listening and your presence. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.